Take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. In that famous piece of literature, Alice in Wonderland, Alice encounters a very colorful character called Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty is, likes to have the floor. He likes to give a disquisition on various subjects, and one of the subjects was the subject of birthday presents. And after he has gone on at some length about birthday presents, he ends with a flourish and the exclamation, there's glory for you, he says. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, until I tell you. I meant, there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. There are many people we meet in life who make up words or use words out of context or who put meaning into words that the words don't carry or bear. And this word glory is one of those words that we need to pause over, and that's why we've come back to it again this evening for the third evening. Uh, And uh, those who do the Bible readings are complaining that they're not getting to do more than the five verses that we've been looking at. But we're still there in those five verses. And what we notice in these five verses of this great prayer of Jesus that we cannot simply glide over or look superficially at, I don't think, is the Lord Jesus' preoccupation with the glory of God. And one of the temptations, I think, is is to think of our, the first question of our catechism. What is the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And to interpret that as something I do to glorify God. And so, to rush to the question, well, Liam, let's, let's not talk about the glory of God for a moment, but what I would really like you to talk about is how can I glorify God? How can I glorify God when I'm doing the housework or my work at business or working with the children or in the garden or when I'm studying, how can I glorify God in the pursuits of my life? We we always want to rush to the takeaway and the practical, and we want to do something to glorify God. It may surprise you to know that the Bible actually doesn't say very much about us glorifying God in that way. It has something to say, but actually it's not much, and it's way at the end of the process. In fact, God glorifies Himself in us, and we'll, we'll see that unpacked as time goes on. Now, let me remind you, if you were here, and tell you if you weren't, that this word glory actually uh, applies ultimately to the very nature of what God is and who God is in Himself. 
We can't see that. We cannot see that. That's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our understanding. We, we don't have minds big enough to comprehend God or we would be God. But what the Bible makes very clear is that God is inherently glorious. That is God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Before there were angels, archangels, a universe, or people. Before there was anything, there was God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are inherently in and of themselves glorious. And we looked at Jesus referring to the glory that He shared with the Father before the world began, that is, before there was anything, before there were angels, before there were men, before there was a world, a universe in which to live. In fact, throughout the Bible, the word glory is a name for the triune God. He is the glory of Israel, for Samuel 15. He is the glory, the King of glory, Psalm 24, actually. Arguably, Psalm 24 is speaking about the Messiah King Jesus, the King of glory, the second person of the Trinity. In Psalm 29, He is the God of glory, and in Ephesians chapter 1, He is the Father of glory. God is glorious in Himself. These names of God are important because the names of God tell us who He is, what He is like. And the use of the word glory as a name for God tells us that glory is essential to His nature. It's one of His attributes. And right here, to be honest, the mind hesitates, the imagination staggers, our comprehension breaks down because we cannot even begin to conceive, far less grasp, the internal glory of God. Only God knows Himself. Only God can grasp His internal glory. And our finite minds and even the minds of angels and archangels, who are far greater than we are, cannot comprehend God in Himself, God in His essence, God as He is with nothing else around. Because the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Do you even understand a word that I'm saying? If not, that's the way it is when it comes to the glory of God. But there's another aspect of this glory, and we've looked at this. The glory is used in the Bible to refer to something that God creates, that is something that He makes. To make His invisible nature, God, you remember, is invisible, to make His invisible nature visible to His angels and to people. So, He creates something in order to make what He is like visible to people, so that we, there is something we can look at, something we can grasp, something we can understand. And when we unpack that in the Bible, we find there are various things that God did in order to show us something of what He is like. For example, we looked at creation, the universe, its sheer enormity, its size, the, the beauty of it, the workings of it, the intricacy of it, the patterns of it, the, the sheer enormity of it all is meant to tell us something about God. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 1. You'll be familiar with these words. 
He says this, what can be known, that is from our human perspective, what can be known about God is plain to them, that is to everybody, because God has shown it to them. In other words, God has put on display something visible to every human being who comes into the world and all the angels as well, something visible to demonstrate to them something of Himself. Paul goes on to say this, listen carefully, His invisible attributes, things you can't see, what are they? His eternal power and divine nature, they're invisible, have been clearly perceived. So, how can the invisible things be clearly perceived by us who can only see the material thing? Well, how how has that happened? Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. Do you see his argument? Paul is saying, God is invisible. God is glorious in and of Himself. You can't see it. I can't see it. The angels can't see it. So, God creates something to display something of His internal, intrinsic, eternal, essential glory. And the universe displays something of the enormous power and size and splendor, and skill, and beauty of God to every human being who comes into the world so that, Paul argues, we are all without excuse. Now, isn't that amazing? And what is amazing, of course, is that as humanity has grown and developed and and experimented and observed, and His understanding is enlarged, the universe is even bigger to us today than it was to our ancestors, even greater to us today. We are in more of a position to wonder in sheer awe at the enormity of God when we consider that this universe, with all its enormous size, is just something that God has made and put on the mantelpiece of His house. I mean, it's something that He has just put there. Isn't that amazing? It just blows our minds. The psalmist says in the Old Testament, the heavens, that is the universe of stars, declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. We, we looked last time at Calvin's lovely picture of the whole universe as a theater that displays the glory of God. Nature in all its parts a theater that displays the glory of God. And we see the glory of God in His providence, that is, in the way He governs history and the way things fall out on the stage of the world, especially those things that we call special revelation, His interventions. We think of the way in which He rescued Israel from Egypt, uh, the way He parted the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry ground, the way in which He fed them and cared for them in the desert until they got to the River Jordan, the way He stopped the River Jordan, allowing them to cross into the Promised Land, the way Jesus came into the world and walked upon the water and fed the multitude and so on. These are demonstrations in providence, the resurrection of Jesus, of His glory. Judgment is a way in which He displays His glory. He glorifies Himself in judging Sidon, 
in bringing about the destruction of Gog and Magog, or Magog, uh, in in the prophets. And supremely, God glorifies Himself in salvation. This is on Jesus' mind in this passage that we read. Do you notice he's, he's thinking about the authority that He has to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. He's thinking about the election that God has made out of humanity, choosing people, chosen by the Father as a love gift to His Son, so that His Son might die for them and secure their happiness and their salvation forever. And Jesus is speaking here about the finished work I've accomplished, He says. Finished the work that you gave me to do. And God glorifies Himself in this work of salvation. In fact, in in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that God chooses people, He redeems them, He saves them according to His great plan of redemption through the work of faith, which is His gift, by the way, and all of this He does to the praise of His glory. He does it all for His glory. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? God glorifies Himself in all these ways. Another aspect of the word glory is that it, the word that's used in the Hebrew has, has to do with the weight in the sense of the heaviness of something. We sometimes use the expression, certainly they do in Britain, I don't know if they do it here, about someone being worth their weight in gold. Some of you are wealthier than others, I suppose, but worth their weight in gold. Uh, we talk about Uh, somebody's good name and reputation may be described in those terms. They're talking about somebody's character, worth their weight in gold. And the God of glory, of course, is worth His weight. He he is heavy. He is is the ultimately heavy one. He has weight. He's like the, the person of some substance, the person with character, the person who just when they walk into the room, you know this is a significant person because there is, there is a, a weight of authority. There is a weight of character about them. And ultimately, God is the one being who has ultimate weight. He carries glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory. I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God does things for the honor of His own name. So I've said all of that, and I've said that glory is something God makes to display who He is. Now, it isn't just the universe that He makes. He makes other things as well. And I want to just take a moment to to say that the background to Jesus using the word here in the Old Testament is the cloud of glory that we find repeatedly referred to there. You know that in Israel, God regularly revealed Himself to His people as a cloud, sometimes known as the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory. This cloud becomes very prominent, and as the story of redemption, the story of 
salvation leading up to Jesus begins to pick up momentum in, in the Old Testament, which it does round about the time of Moses, this cloud then takes on a very unique significance. You, hear, you read about it all the time. Uh, you, you read something about this cloud, remember, so massive, was it? So mobile. Mobile. Mobile? No. Mobile is the correct pronunciation. Massive, bright, mobile cloud of glory that leads them, that appears as they get down there to the, to the Red Sea. And it's so massive that that cloud of glory comes between the children of God, the children of Israel, and the armies of Egypt as they come thundering down upon them. It's massive. And what we find about this cloud is that it is actually consists of fire surrounded by smoke. Uh, it looked like fire. We're told that during the night, it looked like fire. During the day, it looked like cloud. There's a fire burning, and the smoke is gathered round. And during the day, because of the sunlight, you don't see the brightness of the flame inside the cloud. But at nighttime, you see the brightness of the flame shining through the cloud of smoke. It looked like fire. Brilliant fire surrounded by dense smoke. Now, Scripture portrays God as sitting in the midst of that. God reveals Himself to people sitting in the midst of that. Are you following me here? Because this is very important. But I need to know that you're still, your pulse is still beating. You know, just a nod, a movement, arranging yourself in your seat every now and then will just give me encouragement to go on. So God is enthroned among His angelic host in the midst of this cloud. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. We find that people like Moses and Aaron and Samuel and the prophets met with God in the cloud, in the glory cloud, this place that God made so that He could show Himself to people and speak to His prophets. This is how it's put in Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned among the cherubim, let the earth quake. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them and kept His testimonies and the statutes that He gave them. You see the picture? These prophets actually had an encounter with God in this, in this cloud of glory that God had made, they met with Him in the cloud of glory, and He spoke to them, and they heard Him, and they saw a revelation of Him in that cloud of glory, uh, which is what captivated them. They walked and talked with God in the glory cloud of God. And what we learn as we go through the Bible is that that glory cloud was a created replica of the awesome glory of the heavenly throne room where God is in Himself, where He's at home, where His invisible, intrinsic glory lies. This cloud is a created replica 
of that awesome glory. And in the Old Testament, this glory cloud is associated with the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, picking up the Old Testament references on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit descends, many tongues of fire come down and rest on the heads of each of those believing people as they're waiting in the upper room to show that the glory is still here among His people, God's people. The cloud, you remember, led them through the desert. It was mobile. It was always on the move. It was actually quite scary because you never knew what was going to happen next. The cloud might start moving. The cloud of glory uh, with the fire in it might start moving in the middle of the night. You'd have to pack up your tents and follow it. It would stop. Maybe it would stop for a day. Maybe it would stop for a week. Maybe it would stop for a year. You just didn't know. Every morning you had to just check. Let's check the cloud. Let's check the, the glory is still here. We don't want to miss it when it moves. And there's an instability and an uncertainty in life when the glory is there. And yet, this glory cloud is ever-present. And I said he's, the, the, the cloud is identified with the Holy Spirit. So, for example, you remember when the world was made at the beginning, and the Holy Spirit is the one who hovers over the unformed mass of creation So, the same word is used to describe the pillar of cloud hovering over the people of God. And they're all tied together in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me read it to you. The pillar of cloud, you led them. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. So the cloud led the people through the desert. The cloud brought the presence of God close to the people. It not only brought blessing, it often brought judgment when the people rebelled against Him, when they grieved Him. But the cloud was always there, the active presence of God among the people of God. In fact, only Moses, Aaron, and his sons The 70 elders of Israel were permitted to come halfway up the mountain when God was resting on Mount Sinai, where they saw the God of Israel, and they ate and drank with Him. What they saw was the glory. They didn't see Him in Himself. They saw the glory. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 24. Moses went up the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai and covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out of Uh, called to Moses out of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and was in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And after Moses had received the law, he went down, down the mountain. He erected the tabernacle, a court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen and the gate of the court And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord came down to where the people were, a visible display of the magnificence of God's nearness and God's glory. Well, once they get to the promised land, once they cross the River Jordan, 
We don't read about the glory for a while. The glory is associated in the minds of the people with the Ark of the Covenant, but there's no cloud of fire. There's no visible indicator of the presence of God. And that's the way it is. So that in the time of Eli, for example, when Samuel is born or just before Samuel is born, Eli's daughter-in-law says when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, she says, she calls her newborn son Ichabod, which means without glory. And she says of the capture of the ark, the glory has departed from Israel. No glory. David wanted to build a temple. He wasn't permitted to build a temple, but his son Solomon did. And when the temple was being dedicated to God, you remember that there was this magnificent return of the glory to settle on the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's worth reading about in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground and the pavement, and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And for several hundred years after that, if you were in the vicinity of Jerusalem, you would want to go over the hill and walk down into the valley and up to the temple. And as you came over the hill, you would see the temple in Jerusalem. And above the temple, you would see this cloud, this upright cloud. And at night, it would be fire. And then by day, it would be a cloud of smoke over the temple, over the Holy of Holies, a standing reminder to Israel of their supernatural God and an indictment of Israel, that even with this demonstration of His glory amongst them, they still lusted after other gods. God's glory came and remained there, as I say, for hundreds of years, until the day and time of a man called Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a vision he had the vision of the like, seated above a, the likeness of a throne, he says, was the likeness of a human appearance. And upwards from what had the appearance of his waist, you can see he's struggling for words. He uses like the appearance many, many times because he really cannot put it into words what he saw. What had the appearance of a waste, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of a waste. It had the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow in the cloud, the rainbow in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, he says. You know, there's God, there's God's glory, something created to display who He is, and there's the likeness of the glory, and there's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's describing 
that. And he says, I fell on my face. And it's then that Ezekiel caught up into this heavenly throne room, like Isaiah had been, and Samuel before him, and Moses before him. There in the glory cloud, Ezekiel hears the voice of one speaking to him. Then later on in Ezekiel's book, it was given to Ezekiel to see the final appearance of the glory cloud in Israel. It's a great picture. You read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10. He has this vision. He's already in Babylon. He has this vision of what's going on in Jerusalem. God takes him. He's in this heavenly temple, and God shows him stuff there. It's all on screens all around. And uh, he is given to see. There's the glory cloud. And he sees, suddenly he sees the glory cloud lift. And there's a moment of tension. The glory of the glory, he says, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings, he's seeing the heavenly temple, and mounted from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So what's happened is the, the cloud is moving. The glory is moving. It's moving to the door of the temple in Jerusalem. Then it moves further. It moves to the Mount of Olives. Does a quick turn and goes. And that's it. It's done. It's moved away. Israel had constantly disobeyed God. Israel had constantly suppressed the knowledge of the truth it had. And in the end, the holy glory of God took off. The people went into exile. You know that. They came back from their exile. They never really recovered their land. They never knew the independence that they had before as an independent state. They were always under the authority of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. They rebuilt a temple, but they wept when they saw it. It was nothing like the temple there had been. And there was no glory cloud over it. There was no glory cloud over it. And yet, in those days, they found hope in a pre-exilic prophet, Isaiah. Because he began to link the glory of God with an individual, with a person, one who was coming. Somebody from David's line. When this person came, Isaiah said, when he comes, when he arrives, God will arrive in glory. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. The glory will be seen again. That's what he says. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising and, and the references in the Psalms, the king's glory is great. Or in Isaiah chapter 4, where he describes the branch, a, a name for the Messiah who comes from the line, of, a branch from the tree of David, as it were, comes out of that family connection, the branch. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that is the Messiah, shall be beautiful and glorious. 
beautiful and glorious. And they held on to this hope that one day the glory would be seen again in Israel. 800 years after Isaiah wrote that, an angel came to a young girl and said to her, don't be scared. That's what angels always say to people because we would be invariably scared if they came to us. Mary, you found favor with God. Going to conceive in your womb, bear a son, call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. The glory is going to come back. This time not as a cloud of fire and smoke. God is going to create something else. His glory is going to reside in another created object. That holy thing that will be born, that has been created in your womb, Mary. This act of God, this miracle of God, this new creation of God is going to be the vehicle for the glory of God. And on the night he was born, the shepherds of Bethlehem, you remember, had a visit from angels. And the multitude of the heavenly hosts singing and praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest. And the Son of God is glorified, glorifies God by his birth into the world. Because he is the, he is the, the ultimate temple, the ultimate human temple. He himself is. Not a building, but a person. He has come to tabernacle with us, John chapter 1. In him, Emmanuel, God is with us. He is present with us. This time he's present not simply as a cloud of fire and smoke that follows us around or we follow it through the wilderness or it sits over the temple. Now he has come in a person. He has come to be with us. In Luke chapter 2, he is to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to his people, Israel. And so in John chapter 2, the first miracle he performs, one of my favorites, he turns water into wine and he reveals his glory. He reveals his glory. The disciples say, wow, who does that? Who creates like that? In his transfiguration. You remember what happened in the transfiguration? Think of the glory cloud. That it was, it was like fire. It wasn't fire, but it would look like fire. The brightness Ezekiel gives us more detail about that glory cloud. It had the appearance of fire. It was a burning, bright, splendid thing inside this smoke, inside this formed and created exterior. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? Jesus, in his humanity, created by God for him, the glory, the brightness, the splendor, 
bursts through the cloud. This time his flesh. They see the splendor of God shining through the humanity of Jesus. They're overwhelmed by it, those who were there. They have, a, they have a, a revelation. There they are on the mountain, like Moses was on the mountain. In fact, there's Moses. And just like Elijah and the other prophets received their messages from God in the presence of the glory cloud when he came to them, as, as Jeremiah says, and as we looked at this morning, there's a Elijah there as well. But now there's Jesus and through the humanity of Jesus, demonstrating once, Peter says, we saw His majestic glory. Glory. The glory of God in Jesus. And Jesus in His humanity glorifies God just by being here. He glorifies God by doing God things. He glorifies God by doing human things, but human things that we don't do. He glorifies God by obeying the Father. And when Stephen's dying, under that hail of bricks and rocks, do you remember he had this vision? as he succumbed ultimately to death, that first martyr of the Christian faith, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 55, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And above all, Jesus' glory is going to be displayed once more to the whole universe. Once more. He is coming again. He's coming again in the clouds of glory. He's coming again to display His glory. The New Testament talks about the glorious appearance or the appearance in glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't talk, we don't talk often enough about the second coming of Jesus. I maybe us Reformed people, we're overreacting to the dispensationalists who are always talking about it and getting it wrong. Uh, <clears throat> Not that I have opinions about these things. I shouldn't really say that when I'm in Donald Gray Barnhouse's pulpit, but he's in heaven and knows better now. But in First Thessalonians chapter 1, listen to this. And by the way, I learned my, my theology from him and then had to correct it. But anyway, seriously, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, talking about the world, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day 
to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, to be glorified. The Lord Jesus will come in great power and glory. And that day will be, that day will be cataclysmic. Every human being that ever lived, every human being that lives on the earth at that time, will at one moment, in one single nanosecond of time, all together, nobody going before anyone else, all at one time will see the awesome glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it will all be glory for his people. That marvelous picture, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because I want to really flesh it out some other time, but that marvelous picture in the book of Revelation that we saw that I began the service with, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, as it describes the new heavens and the new earth, there you find it's all glory dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. The glory has come. That's our goal. One day we will share in the glory of God, not in an earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly reality. We will see his glory. Now, brother and sister, Whatever this week throws up, whatever challenges or tests it holds, whatever crises or questions or doubts it raises, whatever temptations come your way, whatever trials lie before you, you need this. You need to come back to this. You need to rest your faith and confidence and hope in this, this glory. Because at the end of the day, this is really all that matters. This is all that is substantial. Everything else is passing, fading. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. This is what lasts. If you're not a Christian person, I urge you to think about this. This may have blown you away this evening. There's more to Christianity than you thought. You can spend a lifetime studying it, and it yields yet more riches for the mind and the heart. May the God of glory enable us to rejoice in the glory of God this evening. Father, I pray... For all of us here in this room and for those who are watching by webcast, that all of us together would be waiting and watching for that glorious day when we shall see him face to face. And help us in the meantime to live as those on whom the spirit of glory and of God has rested and taken refuge and residence. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.